0: Hello and welcome to the first ever episode of Talking Terror, a podcast from the Terrorism and Extremism Research Centre at the University of East London. I'm John Morrison, the Director of the Centre and the host of this podcast series. It's our first ever one, depending on how today goes, it could be our last ever one as well, but we'll just have to wait and see. This podcast was recorded on the 21st of July 2017 at 1 o'clock GMT. So obviously if there are any major events which have happened in the time after recording, we're unable to cover them. So, what is this podcast you've decided to unload, you've decided to listen to, or potentially have mistakenly clicked on? Well, this is a series of one-on-one chats with world-leading experts in terrorism, counter-terrorism, and extremism. It's my opportunity to sit down and talk to some people whose research I really respect, whose research I think has something important to say. Across the weeks, I'll be talking to people such as John Horgan, Erica Chenoweth, Lord Dugan, Richard Jackson, Paul Gill, Joshua Freilich, and many more. So, what is the Terrorism and Extremism Research Centre, or Turk as we like to call it here? We're an interdisciplinary research st- centre based predominantly within criminology, but our staff are also from the areas of law, psychology, and education studies as well. Our aim is to carry out interdisciplinary research, asking core questions around terrorism and extremism. So, go to our website uel.ac.uk slash teorc if you want any further information. We're also editing a book series with IB Taurus looking at terrorism and extremism. So, if you have a book idea which you've been looking for a home for, look no further. Again, all the information can be found on our website uel.ac.uk slash teorc. Be sure to also follow us on Twitter at teorcuel. That's all the shameless plugs for the moment, so I'd better introduce today's guest. It's my great pleasure to introduce my colleague and friend, Professor Andrew Silk. Not just an academic, he's an academic who engages with practitioners uh, nationally and internationally. He's on the United Nations roster of terrorism experts and the European Commission's radicalization awareness network of excellence um, he was appointed in 2009 as a specialist advisor to the house of commons communities and local government committee uh, for its inquiry into uk government's program for preventing violent extremism he's also a member of the uk cabinet office national risk assessment behavioral science expert group um, he's written books articles chapters and reports and everything from the psychology of terrorism to the troubles in Northern Ireland from both the Republican and Loyalist perspective, radicalization, vigilantism, Islamic terrorism, forensic psychology, research methods in terrorism, prison and radicalization, terrorism and the Olympics. I, I could just spend the whole podcast just listing what he's written about but I think it's more interesting if we, if we have a chat about it now and if we talk to him about that research. So Andrew welcome and thank you for for uh, for being the first guest on this podcast i think he had no choice i don't think i had a choice <laughs> in <area>. <laughs> yeah. a pleasure to be here though good and I'm, I'm delighted to to have you have you on board for this so first of all i'm going to ask all our guests this but how did you get involved in this area of research
1: well i think for me and and, and actually it's going to be the same answer for some of the guests coming up um one of the key factors was uh, where you went to uni Uh, And I went to university at University College Cork. And while I was there, Max Taylor was the um, head of department at UCC. And Max was a very unusual at that time. So we're we're looking at the early 1990s. And Max came from a psychology background, um, but had worked at the University of Ulster prior to to, to moving to Cork. And he had done some research with loyalist paramilitaries uh, while he'd been based in Northern Ireland and had written on the psychology of terrorists. Uh, which was very unusual for, for, for back then. So it was rare to find a psychologist who had um, uh, carried out research and he taught on it at UCC. So I had a chance to take some of his courses. That got me interested. And then when I was looking to do a PhD, um, uh, Max took me on as a as a PhD student and, and uh, that was essentially it. And what was your PhD on? Well, my PhD initially was looking at uh, uh, paramilitary attacks in Northern Ireland. So I was looking at both Republican and Loyalist attacks. Um, And um, then uh, the paramilitaries, much to my... um, I'm not sure how to pitch it, but they all declared ceasefires um, about 12 months into the PhD. So which, everyone thought your research was irrelevant. Yeah, right? it was suddenly becoming a historical PhD yeah. rather rapidly. And, and, and that did lead to a shift. And the shift was essentially into while the, the, the main, if you want, the, the traditional attacks um, had ceased, the... The paramilitaries engaged in very uh, intensive vigilante campaigns, mm-hmm. and so the PhD switched over to looking at vigilantism, mm-hmm. um, uh, linked in with that. And so, that was a, 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 at that time a very underexplored topic, mm-hmm. um, and very much one that kind of um, took place in the shadows w- within Northern Ireland. So, you, you had very little um, uh, It it never really attracted much attention and it was it was difficult for it to attract attention when you had bombs going off and some serious attacks taking place and so um you know teenagers um you know being attacked with baseball bats in an alleyway somewhere in west belfast didn't get much attention but in the ceasefire era it gradually became more prominent and also it raised some interesting questions about how the paramilitaries worked um, and how they were viewed by the communities around them and, and touched on a lot of important issues around, for example, support for extremism mm-hmm. um, and sympathy for for extremism that wasn't necessarily tied into what we would call ideology. It was about much more, um, if you want, ground-level, community-level issues and how the paramilitaries were, were both trying to exploit that, but also tied into it. So it, was, it wasn't simply a case of the paramilitaries being completely Machiavellian. It was also about them being real people living in the real world and, 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 and dealing with issues which were affecting them, their neighbours, and the community around them. And I think
0: by focusing on something like vigilantism, uh, it brings forward a really interesting and important point that when we're looking as, as people who are ostensibly saying we're looking at terrorism, and when we're looking at the terrorist groups, not all the violence or the illegal activity we're analysing should necessarily be categorised as terrorism. It's some there's different levels and different types of violence and illegal activity. That's
1: well, I think this yeah this you know leads us into the um, you know the quagmire of the definition debate. You know, mm. um, how do you define terrorism and? and by and large you know if you want the mainstream view is you define it by the the person by the individual by the group you belong to a terrorist group therefore you're a terrorist and therefore everything you do is terrorism Mm um and the counter argument that is that no that's not right terrorism is a, is a form of violence against a particular type of target using particular type of methods mm-hmm. uh, and that somebody who engages in terrorist acts isn't necessarily everything that they do, everything that they do isn't necessarily terrorism mm-hmm. and that's a messy and complicated way to, to to approach it and so what you find is that the media and government as well tends to be uh, shy about you know how, how you define it and, and how you how you deal with it and I think one of the things very quickly if you study northern ireland and if you're looking at the paramilitaries um you know at one level is, is the fact that the term paramilitaries is used and um, local communities don't like using the term terrorists mm-hmm. or terrorism they, they see it as politically loaded and it basically means that you're assuming these guys are the bad guys um and while people will um you know on the ground will often say oh, look they're not the nicest bunch of people that you'll ever run into but they're not necessarily you know painting them as terrorists is too simplistic um and i think that's one of the advantages of if of of studying northern ireland or having a background in studying northern ireland is that you very quickly um you know develop a, a more nuanced view on what terrorism is and, and and who terrorists are which i think can be harder to achieve if if for example you start off uh, studying um you know um, al qaeda or islamic state inspired um, lone actors in in the west in in in, you know, in recent years um there's a recognition that you know terrorism is a loaded term mm-hmm. and it has an awful lot of baggage with it which 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 really does get in the way of trying to understand um you know uh, the motivations and, and and the causes of terrorism
0: and with that in mind I one of the things that i ask every guest to do is in preparation for this is to send me some research that has inspired them or inspired them at different stages of their careers and looking at the research that you've put uh you have sent me and all this research will be linked on our website uh, which I mentioned earlier on uh one of the things that I noticed with the three pieces of research that you put forward is that they're all from pre-9-11 they're all from the 70s 80s 90s do you think that among terrorism researchers but also among anyone uh, who wants to know about terrorism that we shouldn't just be looking at what was uh, being found pre-9-11 that we need to be looking uh, or that we shouldn't just look to what's happened post-9-11 but we need to be
1: looking pre-9-11 as well. I I think we do have to look before 9-11 I mean there's a a tendency in, in, in some circles the view 9/11 is essentially the start date for for the study of terrorism and, and efforts to understand terrorism but research on on it, on this goes back even to the 50s mm-hmm. you, you can you can find um, uh, works been carried out um, and I think a lot of the older stuff gets overlooked mm-hmm. um, and and as a result of that some of the uh, important insights that people had already reached mm-hmm. um, back in the, the 70s, 80s and, and 90s um, have tended to be lost in the uh, aftermath of 9-11. Now, part of the reason for that is there's been a, such a huge amount of research um, carried out um, since 9-11 that mm. um, it's easy to just focus on that and, and 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 don't spare any time for for the stuff that came before. But I think if we do that, then we miss out some of the gems, really, that... that, that um, uh, exist in the pre-911 uh, literature
0: mm-hmm.
1: with that in mind
0: so what are the gems that you you picked what were the three um publications that you picked as inspiring you and why why did they inspire your your research
1: yeah i mean the i mean it's always an interesting question you know what what articles had a big influence and obviously you know there was, there was more than just those three but but these ones i think. Do stand out for me, and the opener is is Wilfred Rash's 1979 paper on on the uh, Red Army Faction and, and left wing terrorist prisoners, um, where he essentially, in, in a classic study, he was able to get access to uh, terrorist prisoners in West Germany. And he was contracted by the West German government to go into prison and interview the the thirty or forty. Um, uh, terrorists that they had inside. Um, and his brief was essentially to try and understand the motivation for why were, were these individuals getting involved in terrorism. Many of them were, were coming from middle-class backgrounds, had, were educated, had a, had a lot of good prospects. Um, some of them were, you know, coming from more troubled histories, where, had been involved in the life of petty crime before they moved into terrorism. And in short, very, very similar pictures in many respects to um, what we see with a lot of the uh, jihadis in, in you know, recent years in terms of coming from a mix of backgrounds, some very good and some not so good. Now, the assumption at the time was that the, the terrorists had a particular personality type and that this personality type w- was explaining why they were getting involved in terrorism, that there was, in a sense, terrorists were maybe psychopaths or, or narcissists, or, but, but basically they had an, a deviant personality Um, And this explained why they were getting involved in serious violence. And you had a lot of publications in the 70s that were pushing this view, uh, and pushing it really hard that there was a, terrorists, um, you know, had a very, uh, had a a twisted, aberrant, uh, clinical personality. um, And this is the reason why they did it. And you you didn't need to look beyond that in terms of a cause or motivation. So terrorism was essentially a form of madness. and that view had an awful lot of appeal because terrorist violence can be very extreme, and particularly when the violence is directed against innocents, women, children, non-combatants, completely innocent, highly vulnerable people. Now, Rash, in his conclusions, you know, basically you know, found that this idea was rubbish. And having interviewed and assessed the terrorists face to face, he came away and said, Look, these are essentially ordinary. Unremarkable individuals. Their psychology isn't the psychology of psychopaths or people with serious personality problems. Um, in fact, if anything, his main criticism was that was in relation to the conditions in which they were being held in prison. Mm-hmm. And, and the West German authorities had uh, many of the the, the 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 terrorists were basically being held in, in really severe solitary confinement conditions no contact whatsoever with anybody else and and rash's argument was that this was, it was the solitary confinement was having a, a deeply negative impact on their psychology um, and, uh, uh, and as uh, you may recall you know many of the leaders of the red army faction went on to commit suicide within prison and rash drew attention to you know the conditions in which they were held but he said that you know aberrant psychology, clinical psychology, psychopathy, anything like that was not the explanation for why they got involved in terrorism. And he was very clear, if you wanted to understand why these people were getting involved in terrorism, you needed to look elsewhere for answers. Mm-hmm. And that that I think was an incredibly important study for two reasons. One was um, the, the the conclusion, the argument that, you know, clinical psychology Um, is not an explanation for terrorism, was an important one. But the second one was the the, the source of evidence. Uh, Rash had actually gone, met the terrorists face-to-face, interviewed them, assessed them face-to-face, and unlike a lot of the stuff which was being written at the time, um, which was long-range, at a distance, kind of uh, psychoanalyzing from a desk uh, about somebody who you never actually had met, Rash had met them, and so that challenged straight away a lot of the assumptions that people who look at terrorists from long range um, find it very, very easy to, to come to. So for those reasons, I think that's a particularly important piece of work. And do you think
0: that that's still having an influence today, that piece of work? How is it developed? How is our, how's the thinking about the psychology of terrorism in the modern day in 2017 compared to what Rash was dealing with?
1: Well, it, it, it's, a, it's a curious thing because one of the... I think one of the the problems with terrorism studies is the idea of mental illness explaining radicalization, as we refer to it now, or explain why people become terrorists or join terrorist groups, hasn't gone away, and it's never completely gone away. It keeps coming back in different forms, and I think the there's a, a, a if you want a, a tendency to assume that there must be a personality explanation to to uh, to terrorism that. Uh, people with certain personality types must be more vulnerable to becoming involved and and that that is a very attractive idea and the result is that it, it then feeds into narratives which are built on mental illness explanations of of, of terrorism and um, and rash's argument was essentially way back in 1979 was basically saying no that you know that just doesn't wash you might be arguing it but when you meet these people and you assess them face to face that, that explanation doesn't hold up and when we look at the incidence of, of you know mental illness within terrorist populations you find that it tends to be no higher than the uh, the general population so um, the one exception appear is in relation to, loan actors and where there's work by Paul Gill and others shows that there's a higher percentage there but even with regard to loan actors the majority of loan actors do not have mental health Mm -hmm. um, issues Um, and so but for many in, in, in the public but also many in government um, pushing a mental health explanation for terrorism is still remains very attractive and very compelling. And I think it's an idea that has to be constantly policed and monitored and that lazy assumptions can't be allowed to, to slip through. And
0: I suppose if you're able to
1: blame it on something
0: like mental health, you can then absolve yourself saying, well, the context doesn't matter, we
1: can't change it. Oh, yeah, I mean, I mean this, this is the thing, because if the cause of terrorism is, you know, they've got a psychological problem, then you don't worry about negotiated settlements with them and, and peace processes and, and making compromises and all the rest of this. Um, you don't ne- negotiate with psychopaths. No. But if mental health isn't an explanation, then that means that other factors are, are causing this. And some of those other factors arguably need to be taken seriously.
0: And I suppose as well, an important point, and I'm, I know uh, Paul Gale and Emily Corner and others would would make this, just the very presence of uh, a mental health problem for want of a better word uh doesn't necessarily mean that that's the cause of the involvement in terrorism as well it's just be just the the presence there uh doesn't necessarily mean that they're directly linked uh, to each other so that's the the work of rash and it's I know for me it was highly influential on my career as well. Looking at it, uh, looking at terrorism from a psychological point of view. And um, what was the next, the next piece that you? took? I think the
1: next one is Jeffrey Sluka's book, um, Hearts and Minds, Water and Fish, and this is a brilliant book, and it's based on um, uh, Jeffrey Sluka's PhD, which he carried out in Northern Ireland in the nineteen eighties, and I actually came across a copy of this book in a small bookshop in Belfast. Um, when I was there doing my my own PhD, and I remember picking it up, and I just wasn't able to put it down because it was so good. Um, and essentially, what uh, Jeffrey had done was was uh, he was in West Belfast, and he essentially just spent a year living in the area, getting to know people. It was an ethnographic piece of work, um, and, and talking to the locals, and and and, and um, um, you know, it, it was very much an in depth highly personal piece of research and i think what was what i found incredibly valuable about it again was that he was looking very much at issues around support and sympathy for for the terrorist groups and again one of the things that came out from this very strongly was the idea that the communities the local communities do not see these people as terrorists and and do not have this black and white view on them and very much disagreed with let's say the official government view on what was going on or the you know even the government portrayal of them as as as, as criminals um and it was i think that was a, a you know the, the there were a whole range of reasons why I, why i liked and i appreciated this this book but one was the the, the again pushing the argument that if you want to understand terrorism Then you need to get as close to the source as you possibly can and you need to talk to people you need to be there and you need to see the context in which it is is happening and you need to recognize that while in in, in some frameworks and in some uh, places terrorism is seen as a black and white issue it very rarely is black and white when you're actually on the ground and it tends to be complicated and it tends to be complex and it tends to be all shades of grey Um. Uh, And research, good research for me needed to to kind of tap into that, needed to have that type of recognition and that if it it tried to portray it in in, in very stark black and white good versus evil um, scenarios, then it was going to miss so much information and and, and so much um, insight as to become almost useless.
0: And this issue of support, is it, so we had traditional groups like uh, the Provisional IRA and the INLA who Geoffrey was looking at there. Um, is this still relevant today? Is this issue of support, and, and if so, where is it relevant? Because we see in the news the whole time that it's lone actor terrorists radicalized online, and this is what the news is telling us. But you're talking about the support from a community, support from a community, be it passive or active support. um. For these terrorist actors or paramilitaries, as they would have been more readily called in
1: Northern Ireland. So where and where is this relevant? Today? Well, I think it's it's still relevant, and I think it's very relevant. I mean, uh, you look at groups, you look at Islamic State, and um, um, you look at organizations like Hamas or Hezbollah. You look at um, you know you, you look at pretty much any large group anywhere in the world that's that's been around for a long time, and and the reason it's been around for a long time is because it has. Um, a core of support, a core of sympathy because it is it is tapping into um, ideals and values and and, and and local issues in a way that gives it credibility and gives it traction. Um, and I think the West, if you want, or often falls into the trap of just looking at terrorism in terms of ideology. Mm-hmm. So for example, if you looked at the IRA purely in terms of ideology, um, you know, the desire for a 32 county Irish Republic with you know some socialist uh, issues and you know and a few strange ideas on who's the original Doyle and legitimate government and blah 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 and putting government and Athlone and places. Well, that alone. you know Athlone, I wouldn't necessarily disagree with that. <laughs> you know, but um, it, it's it's if you look at it in those terms, that doesn't explain why it has local support within a housing estate in West Belfast, um, and it doesn't explain why there's sympathy and and why there was, you know, uh, tolerance for them and. and and simply tolerance, but in some quarters, you know, very, very strong support. Um, but if you then do a piece of work like Jeffrey Sluka's, where you're on the ground, where you're talking to local people, where you're living the life, where you're seeing everything that they have to put up with, where you're, you know, as he did, encountering the security forces on a daily basis and you know, um, getting a sense of what that, that is like, um, that changes everything, and suddenly you begin to see it's not about the ideology, um, it, it is about you know, who these people are, the fact that they live in the community too, that he is a friend of your children, he was around for tea, he was playing in the back garden, he grew up, now he's in the IRA. Mm-hmm. Uh, do you turn your back on him? No, you don't. He's still family friend, you know, still connections. Um, you've got, had a lot of negative experiences with the security forces, there's a lot of issues you're not happy with with the government. And so the result is that while you're not necessarily jumping up and down with excitement over a 32-county Irish Republic, you're not you know you're also you know have other reasons to have support and sympathy for the ira which are beyond that and which are which are which are not necessarily connected to that and so one of the i think one of the, the you know the insights from from that type of work is that it challenges the idea that it's all about ideology uh, and that if you want to understand what drives a terrorist movement what drives support for a terrorist cause. Um, ideology isn't necessarily the most important factor. Other factors play a role in terms of both bringing people into the movement, but also in terms of creating support and sympathy for that movement uh, in wider communities.
0: And this goes back to what we were discussing about in relation to rash. Like it's it's very easy to point to um, psychopathy and other uh other strains of mental health problems um, but we sometimes to our detriment ignore just normal everyday human interactions and the, the way that that can have an influence as well and if, if we look at the Uh, normal human psychology, we can make significant advances in understanding uh, terrorist psychology as well. And it it goes into this uh, point, the whole thing about Sluka's research and support links with what you were talking about in your PhD about vigilantism as well, that how this actually helped foster the support of the community and built up the support of the community. Your final piece that you picked uh, as influencing you, uh, it's one I think that has influenced many a researcher in, in
1: terrorism studies and continues to today what's that piece this is Walter Reich's classic edited book from 1990 Origins of Terrorism uh, which for me is a, an absolutely brilliant book um, now Walter Reich is a, a little bit unusual because he's, he's not exactly like you know um, a Paul Wilkinson mm-hmm. or uh, you know uh, uh Martin Crenshaw that type of character who did a lot of work on terrorism and, and has been around for a long time but he kind of kicked in with this contribution but it's a brilliant contribution, and it has essentially distilled some of the key players and the key writers in the area. wrote chapters in this book, and 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 I remember when I you know got hold of a copy doing my PhD. It's of all the books I, I got hold of, this is the one that ended up the most dog-eared, underlined, highlighted, you know, post-its everywhere, and mm-hmm. um, just across the board. And it is it is a, a brilliant piece of work. Um, And I think it has stood the test of time very well. Now, I think one of the things that I really liked about this was that, you know, it, it was conflicted because you had a lot of chapters which were essentially completely disagreeing with what the previous chapter had just said. So, you know, one, you know, Martha Crenshaw has a brilliant chapter in it where she makes a lot of her, you know, very sensible points about the psychology of terrorism, um, uh, always. I uh, I think Marta has come to sensible conclusions, and then you know the you have a following chapter with by um you know Jerry Post, where you know he, he was kind of pushing hard his his ideas on on uh, you know a terrorist personality type uh, and 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 um, you know particularly around a narcissistic personality, mm. and you know it's kind of. Uh, you know, and, and essentially the two of them were completely disagree with, with each other. So this wasn't a, a book about everyone singing from the same hymn sheet, but it was essentially if you wanted one book to pull together what were the key arguments, the key debates, and um, the key issues, then this was the book to go for. And I think it's um, um, it really, really stood out as being um, um, an important piece of work um, which really said an awful lot of um, um, uh, you know, important messages about what we understood about terrorism, but also what were the key debates and the key challenges in terms of understanding terrorism.
0: If this was to be updated today, uh, what did it, What new elements do you think would come into such an essential book? What would it, have, what would it be missing that we need to talk about in a moment? I think
1: probably... The evidence, the evidence base. Mm-hmm. So, if you were to look at this book today, the one of the things which was really lacking at the time were, were kind of good studies where you had access to large numbers of terrorists, mm-hmm. um, also some control groups where, where you could compare you know the terrorist sample with a different sample. You know that information was just really lacking at the time, and so the the arguments that were taking place were largely theoretical ar- arguments. So it was it was theory driven with maybe a few anecdotes thrown in um you had um you know kind of the work being cited were um you know studies of maybe uh, italian left-wing terrorists who had been interviewed or you know somebody who'd done some work in Northern ireland as well and had spoken to, to people but it tended to be a bit more anecdotal mm-hmm. um, a bit more ethnographic so it was kind of it would get you so far, but then to, to 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 nail down arguments was very very tough and difficult to do. And I think a lot of the conclusions that were reached and a lot of the the issues that were highlighted they've stood the test of time. So they're still the issues that we're dealing with now. Um, and you know a lot of the theoretical issues are still in play right now. But the evidence base has changed now, so it, it's kind of. The, the quality of uh, the information which is available today compared to the quality of the information which was available in 1990, um, I think has improved considerably. Now, that doesn't mean that it's perfect, but it, it, it is definitely a step up compared to where it was in, in that era in the 1990s. Are there different disciplines now looking at terrorism? Well, I think the terrorism traditionally was always dominated by the political sciences um, and, and especially by international relations. Um, psychology was there and was kind of always you know, uh, on the fringes. But you'd, you'd argue that certainly since 9-11, the role of psychology has has increased. And certainly if we look at criminology, that's much more significant today than it would have been uh, prior to 9-11. Uh, but political science is still... A big player in terms of in terms of research on terrorism, I think it's always it was always recognised as being in a, an interdisciplinary area. So it was a mix of disciplines, um, and it still is a mix of disciplines, but arguably with a bigger role now for fields like psychology, uh, sociology, and and criminology. Um, who. It's not a case that they've appeared from nowhere, but rather they've simply taken on a, a, a more substantial role. Yeah, you've seen in recent years a lot, a huge advances in
0: a, a number of criminologists uh, coming on board. And we'll have a number of them uh, within our series uh, with talking to us over the next uh, few weeks and months ahead as well. And I think it has been a huge, hugely positive um, uh, step that the researchers in terrorism have taken um of this the study of terrorism has taken and bringing on criminological uh, viewpoints as well so that's other people's work but we're not here to talk about other people's work we're here to talk about your work as well i've also as well as asking you to select work of others that has influenced you i've asked you for some key research of your own um and the first piece of research that you've selected, it's it's an edited volume, it's like uh, Reich's work there, it's your book, Terrorism, Victims and Society, published by Wiley Press. It's that great red cover there that I'm sure is on the bookshelves of many people listening here. Um, why did you decide to put together this edited collection? What was the aim of the book?
1: Yeah, the well, the uh, uh, the book's origins um, go back to when I started work at University of of Leicester and um, at that time I was based within the, the psychology school at the University of Leicester and uh, my background again this is pre-911 so a psychologist who's doing research on terrorism and terrorists is unusual in, in that time frame and, and so um, the one of the series editors was also based at Leicester and he asked me if I'd be willing to put together a proposal to do something which I did, I was, I was quite keen. Um, and then, why they got back and said, "Yeah, we like it very much, but uh, we don't think you're a big enough name to to put it off. So, can you get somebody who is a big name to to come on board?" Um, and you know, at that stage of my career, you know, anything to get published. So, cool. um, uh, I, I knew Ariel Morari, who is a very big figure yeah. in terms of in terms of psychology of terrorism. And I asked Ariel if he would come on board, and he said yes. Um, and so, initially, the book was actually going to be um uh, silken and, and marari as, as editors um and so it started life roughly in about 99 i'd say probably now um i whether it's a good thing or a bad thing i don't know but um ariel is you know a busy man and uh you know eventually he 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 kind of after a while dropped out of the project and so at this stage wiley had already agreed all the paperwork and everything was in the pipeline they said okay okay we're not thrilled but you go ahead with it yourself and so it it kind of that's the origin of of the book now my idea was very much to try and get um together a book which pulled out what we knew about the psychology of terrorism um, and at that time and so it was a case of getting together chapters on, on, on the key issues and so the key issues ranged from both the motivation. So, in terms of why do people become terrorists? Is there a terrorist personality? And then also issues around the impact of terrorism. So, what's the impact on victims? And then a little bit as well looking at, 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 at counterterrorism and, and some of the psychological issues there. Um, and it you know took time to gather together all the different contributors for that. Um, and while the book was in in process and and the you know, uh, you know 9-11 takes place and um, now the book doesn't come out until 2003 but it essentially had already you know already been going for nearly two years before nine eleven so it was quite a, a long gestation pro- process with it but it had then the advantage of it wasn't um, a knee-jerk reaction to 9-11 and mm-hmm. um, it had been you know in the pipeline b- before that and as a result it, it benefited from being quite a considered book um, where the issues in a sense had already been identified before 9-11 happened Um, and while 9-11 certainly emphasized the importance of the topic it it wasn't kind of a case of oh well then it needs to all be about islamic extremism we need to focus on al-qaeda we need to focus on um you know these issues because you know you know these are the the key issues do do you think it actually benefited that you were
0: that you would got it pretty much all done before 9-11, do you think that that could have skewed people's perspectives in what they're writing or in what the focus felt should be?
1: I think I, I think it was a big advantage. Um, now, what happened, of course, is that 9-11 still fed into it in terms mm. of, so if you're talking about the impact on victims, then inevitably, and especially if you're talking about the impact of a big terrorist attack, mm. well, you know, there's, 9-11 has just happened, so what you know, what have we learned as a result of 9-11? And we learned quite a lot. Um mm. Other issues, like for example, um, you know, the chapter on suicide terrorism, you know, that had already been in the, in the pipeline. Um, there had been a big spike in, in suicide terrorism, as uh, in, um, you know, uh, as a result of the Palestinian conflict from you know September in two thousand, and um, so it was already becoming a, an increasingly big issue. But then 9-11 adds into the importance. So I think it, it, in a sense, it did benefit from being a, a pre nine eleven child, so to speak, but. It still took another you know, 18 months afterwards before it was published, so it did benefit from um, you know, a, a lot of the initial findings and some of the, um, the initial research that had, that had been carried out after 9-11. Mm-hmm. And your focus
0: on the victims, as you were saying, I think this is something really important, that it's often ignored within terrorism studies, and probably one of the most, if not the most, important population when you're looking at terrorism, the victims of, uh, of these terrorist attacks. What was what was the research about victims saying within this book?
1: Well, one of the I think one of the the key findings is that communities, or if you want to, um, societies which experience high levels of terrorism, are remarkably resilient. And so, if we look, for example, at Northern Ireland, or if we look at Israel, and we look at some of the other cases, in societies where you have a high level or relatively high level of terrorist attack, the society overall is remarkably resilient to it. So. It, it, you know people often assume that you know if you have one attack after another um, this is going to um you know compromise the, the the psychological health and well-being of the society but that doesn't happen and you get you know uh, instead a, a blitz style effect where people actually pull together and there's you know um, uh, increased social support and actually you have a, an improvement for a large proportion of the society actually experience better mental health than when um, in, in the previous era. Now, so that's one finding. The other finding, though, is, is that when you look at specific vic- direct victims, so the people who are actually caught up in the violence, who suffer injuries, who lose a loved one, um, they do experience very significant negative psychological effects as a result of the, the violence. And that's where you're looking at things like post traumatic stress disorder and, and, and other, um, um, uh, other impacts like that. So you have this mix. Terrorism can be very traumatic and and very high impact but its impact on a wider society is that can actually be surprisingly um limited Um, and so that was a a challenge and one of the other findings that came out as well was the role of the media and so the the, in relation to media coverage of terrorist attacks and the psychological impact of that and there were even after 9 11 there were some findings coming out which were, were suggesting that people were becoming traumatized not because they had a direct connection to an attack, but because of exposure to, to media coverage. They were watching a lot of the media coverage, um, and this was having a, a big impact on a small number of people, but nonetheless, for, for some of these people they were ending up with, um, you know PTSD and PTSD symptoms. So was, and and it was purely from media exposure rather than any direct exposure to the violence. And do you
0: think that that could be accentuated now with the real twenty four hour news cycle, not just what we watch on TV, but what we uh, read online
1: as well? Do you think that we've got at a heightened risk of that effect now? I think I think it, I think that's still an issue. Now most people it, it's. Are not going to be affected by it in the mm. same in, in the same way but for a, a small minority um it can have a very harmful impact and, and it's there's an interesting literature now that's built up around how do societies and how do the communities adapt to terrorism mm. uh, and what you find again is that you know you get habituation so basically people get used to a certain level of violence and a certain level of threat in the environment and then treat it as normal and again old hands from you know, doing research in, in, you know, Belfast and elsewhere would be, you know, very familiar with that. You know, you you know your first time you go to Belfast, back in the, you know, days of the Troubles, you know, people just took it for granted. Yeah, of course, yeah, it's a bomb, but, you know, it'll, be, it'll all be over in half an hour. And, you know, there'll be another bomb tomorrow, but don't worry about it too much. Um, whereas, you know, the, the tourists and the people who are just in are kind of freaked out that, you know, wow, oh, there's a bomb. You know? yeah. um, and what you find is that societies and communities habituate and you can get used to almost anything, um, and that I think is one remarkable finding. But then the other finding, of course, is that you know when you look at direct victims mm-hmm. and you look at you know people who have suffered directly as a result of a terrorist attack, then that's where you still see the very harmful psychological mm-hmm. effects. And one of the things for
0: people who are reading this book, who are just new to terrorism research, or who. Are just interested in in the psychology of terrorism. One of the things that they'd see is that there's an absence of discussion of radicalization in this book.
1: Why is that? Well, this I mean, when the book came out in two thousand and three, radicalization wasn't being used as the term to uh, talk about how people became involved in terrorism, and, and and I think the the initial appearance of radicalization as a term is in two thousand and two in some government documents in, 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 in Belgium, and it gradually spreads as a term and as the framework to think about how people become involved in terrorism. So there's, there's a chapter in that book called Becoming a Terrorist. Mm. Now today, if, if that chapter was written, it would almost certainly be called radicalization. Um, but back then, you know, how people became involved in terrorism was discussed in terms of recruitment, joining, becoming. Um, very if you want normal ordinary terms to 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 uh, try and frame how people did become involved in in terrorism now radicalization however in the years which followed really starts to dominate discussions on that so radicalization emerges as this as this process through which people become involved in in, in terrorism now, I think, you know, it it starts, if you want, in 2002 in in those Belgian uh, government policy documents, but really kicks off big time in the UK after the 7-7 attacks in 2005 and pretty much by 2007. That's it. Radicalization has taken over. It's now the dominant framework. and there are problems, of course, with that because how, you know, how radicalization is defined it, it, you know, varies and what it means to different people also varies. And I think one of the reasons why radicalization took over is because it implies uh, an exotic process, mm-hmm. that there's something very unusual going on here in terms of why these people are becoming involved in terrorism. And, and as a result of that, then maybe there's something very unusual about these people or maybe there's something very unusual about the factors which are driving them in but it's not normal um, and so if you want it's it's almost harking back to the 1970s and to the ideas of mental illness but instead of talking about mental illness we're talking about this exotic process of radicalization um, and as a result of that you know we then end up that radicalization becomes a root cause of terrorism. Now, I've always been deeply sceptical. That's like saying becoming a terrorist is a root cause of becoming a terrorist. It, it, you know, it's, it's a meaningless explanation. Um, but it builds this traction. People now start thinking, if you ask people, oh, what's the biggest cause of terrorism? They'll, you know, One of the things that they'll, they'll flag up is radicalisation. Radicalisation. But radicalisation is just the process of people being recruited or people joining. Um, and it's kind of a bit of a... It's almost a, a bit of a cul-de-sac. Now, the value of radicalization, I think, is in terms of it does provide a framework. So if you want to understand today um, how people are becoming involved in terrorism, then you know the search term you use is radicalization. And that essentially is bringing together lots of different research, lots of different studies, lots of different theories, in a way that arguably was, wasn't quite happening in the same way Prior to two thousand and five, so it's a it's a double edged sword. It's it's got benefits, but it also I think has a has a tendency to mislead.
0: And even though it, it is this double edged sword, it is something that you do go on and talk about in your research. Um, some excellent research on radicalization over the past few years, and one of the areas you focus on specifically is radicalization within the prisons. Is there a problem with uh, radicalization in prisons
1: specifically? Well. It depends on the prison, and it depends on the prison system. And I think this is one of the one of the important um, points about the prison research is context matters. Mm-hmm. So if you are looking at you know in some prisons there there might be quite a substantial problem in other prisons there isn't. Now in the UK in general, there isn't a big problem with radicalization within within prison. Um, it gets talked about a lot and prison is flagged up as being one of the key centers of radicalization in, in the UK. Um, but the reality is that there's very little actually taking place um, and the scale of the problem isn't anywhere near as bad or as substantial as is as, as often pushed by the media or by um, uh, various critics and commentators in, in, in public life. Um, and so it's kind of a it's 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 one of these myths around terrorism. You know the idea that you know jails and prisons are breeding grounds for, for extremism, and that really hasn't been hasn't been um, um, shown to be true within the UK context. Now, if you look in some other jurisdictions, prisons do play um, a more substantial or a clearer role in radicalization, But usually, what you find is that. Um, you know, the conditions are quite supportive of, um, you know, extremism developing within the prison. So you might have, you know, the prison system is poorly resourced, and there's a lack of staff, conditions aren't great. And there's a lot of uh, prisoners are able to, to, to mingle together very easily. Maybe religious support or, or um, you know, chaplaincy is badly funded, isn't being provided. And as a result of that, there's, um, you know, there's no counter voice to an extremist um, you know, stepping forward and saying, if you want to know about you know, this religion, I, I'm the person to tell There's you. There's a vacuum there. There's a vacuum. And so what you find is that you get the context then matters. Um, but I don't think prison, it, prison isn't automatically a center of radicalization, but it is a very convenient, you know, um, uh, troubled spot for for politicians and others to highlight and say, oh, there is a problem in here. And by and large, the public and the media go along with that uh, without too much critical um, uh, thought. And much of your
0: research on prisons and uh, radicalisation and extremism is in your, in your book from 2014, Prisons, Terrorism and Extremism, Critical Issues in Management, Radicalisation and Reform, published by Routledge. And within that, you've got a chapter on risk assessment of terrorism, terrorists, and extremist prisoners. Um, so even though you say that prisons aren't automatically um a place where radicalization it, it, if that fosters radicalization there is still the necessity for risk assessment here and you talk in your in that chapter about four specific populations that we have to look at what could you uh, discuss what those populations are and why these are the populations we need
1: to consider yeah i mean the the four populations uh, the first population are convicted terrorists. So these are people who genuinely um, believe in a particular cause and have um, carried out violence or, or, or other crimes on behalf of that cause and are going into pr- prison essentially as true believers in for for whatever um, that particular cause is. So whether it's IRA members or whether it's somebody who's been inspired by Al-Qaeda or Islamic State or, 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 or whatever it happens to be. Um, and, but these are individuals then who are politically motivated uh, and have been willing to engage in violence or other criminal activity on behalf of this political cause, and um, that's one group. So, so the true believers, if you will. Next group are people who have ended up with a terrorism-related conviction, but aren't necessarily true believers. So. This might be somebody who's stored weapons for a family member or for a friend, or because you know they were pressured into into it, or, or but but not because they believe in the cause. Or it might be somebody who's assisted, you know, a friend or a family member, um, because they were a friend or family member, not because they agreed with mm-hmm. the cause. Um, and there is quite a substantial number of people in prison who, who have that type of background. So that you know, and in many of them, in the court cases you will even have recognition from the judges that you know you weren't radicalized you're not a believer but you still broke the, the law because of know um, your, your friend or your family member but they're now in the prison system and they are essentially treated as terrorists um, mm-hmm. but they're not radicalized mm-hmm. so that's a sub sample um next group are um uh radicalized prisoners so who had who went into prison for completely non-terrorism-related reasons. So they committed a crime uh, for personal gain or f- you know for, for other reasons, go into prison, and then within prison become radicalised. And so there's a lot of hype and there's a lot of concern about this particular group. And there certainly have been cases of individuals who have become radicalised within prison um, and have emerged from prison highly committed, highly dangerous individuals, although the numbers tend to be very, very small and nowhere near... Uh, matching the, the kind of the general hype about it and so that's a, a a group and then the final group are the vulnerable prisoners so this is the those prisoners who are judged to be at risk of radical, radicalization if they are exposed to the wrong sort of individuals or the wrong so, sort of environment so there's not necessarily any sign that they're being radicalized now but there are concerns that in the wrong environment they could end up being radicalized so it's it's kind of there's a potential problem here, but not, a, not a, a current problem. And so there's, by and large, prison systems are, are, are struggling to deal with these four groups. Um, and how you deal with the four groups, I argue, in the chapter needs to be different, that you can't treat them all the same. And if you treat them all the same, then you're inevitably going to make mistakes and you're going to miss stuff.
0: And this goes to the, the point, and it's the point you make in the... In the opening couple of pages that it's a mistake to assume an overlap between an individual's motivation and a group's ideology and highlighted there perfectly in those four populations and I suppose this goes into the whole issue of if we're trying to counter terrorism by countering an ideology we're missing the point a lot of the time that that's that going back to this research in modern day or going back to the research you were talking about pre 9-11 be it in Belfast or elsewhere that people are getting involved not just for ideological reasons and sometimes not even knowing what the ideological motivations of these groups are, but it's for their own personal reasons and for their own, uh, their own, their own personal reasons and human interactions, normal human interactions that they're having. Um, so with that in mind, how should the prisons
1: be dealing with this? Well, I think part of the challenge is, is, is number one, recognising that, in, in, certainly in the context of the UK where you've got by international standards, a well-funded, well-run, well-organized prison system that's got good resources. Again, by international standards, I mean it's still got problems. Don't get me wrong, but by international standards, it's it's in fairly good shape. Uh, where you have a strong chaplaincy, where you've got a you know that actually you don't really have that big a problem. And this, I think, was one of the you know the you know the, there's been a bit of public debate around how big a problem is radicalization within the UK jails um, um, in recent years. And you kind of have, it's easy to say, oh, it's a big problem. Um, the agents in review, for example, you know, argued that there was a big issue with radicalization. But if you dug down into most of the detail in terms of what the review was finding, it was actually about the potential for problems rather than necessarily that there was a big problem. Um, so I think one issue is is you actually need to have, a, you know, some resilience in terms of this isn't a necessarily a huge issue. Mm-hmm. Um, it, it's likely to affect very small numbers of, of prisoners in, in terms of who actually does become radicalised. And a, a general sense was that if there is an issue, it's more likely to be in the not in the Category A prisons, i.e. the high-security prisons. It's more likely to be in the uh, medium and low-security prisons where um, uh, you know, staff prisoner ratios aren't, aren't quite as good. Um, and where um, you know, monitoring might not be as good, but by and large, the terrorist prisoners are all being held in the high security estates, so you don't need to, to worry about them too much. I mean, the, the ability of somebody like um, you know, Abu Hamza or Abu Qatada to, to, to radicalize prisoners when they were in the system was very limited because they were high security prisoners who were watched very closely um, and generally had a fairly limited ability to interact with prisoners without that being observed um so the idea that you could have somebody like abu hamza wandering around the wing uh having unrestricted access to young vulnerable prisoners to to indoctrinate them that was you know a myth that wasn't going to going to happen um and i think the public however because the government keeps pushing the idea of of prisons as centers of radicalization that that gets lost people assume that the, the problem is much worse um, and much more extreme than is really the case.
0: And with all this research that you've carried out, and with your connections and your, your engagement with practitioners, do you find that the research does influence the way that practitioners um, organise things, the way that they put forward their policies, say in particular in relation to the prisons that we're talking about here, the way, uh, the way that prisons are run or that the, how, it's, how
1: it's changed? Uh, I mean, overall, I have a deeply cynical view on, on the ability of research to influence policy. Um, and so my default position is that the research has no impact whatsoever on policy. Now, that's probably too harsh, and it probably has more impact than I give it credit for. But I assume that the impact is going to be very, very limited. Um, and I, and I, I think this is, again, the, the simple fact that, ter- that prisons keep being flagged up as centres of radicalisation. Um, you know along with if you if you look at you know if you look at you know the UK counterterrorism narrative over the last 10-15 years it's flagged up mosques it's flagged up universities and it's flagged up prisons as being three areas where radicalization is taking place now the issue with mosques was was cleared up very quickly within a couple of years but universities and prison continue to be pushed hard and, and, and you know you know as well as me that to view of universities as centres of radicalisation is a bit of a non starter, but nonetheless, it's gotten into government policy and it's now inframed. And simply because X proportion of convicted terrorists went to university, therefore, university is a centre of radicalisation, therefore, there's a big problem in universities. And it's faulty logic, mm. um, but it's logic that's been accepted. I think prison gets accepted in the same way with even less scrutiny. Because people are going, oh, well, there's loads of prisoners, there's loads of terrorists in prison. Um, so, of course, they're going to be radicalising everybody left, right and centre around them. Um, so, yeah, of course, this makes sense. So it's natural for, the, for for this to be a big issue and for the government to introduce a whole range of policies to, to try and tackle it. And it's it's often, I find it's, it's, and as a result of that, policies like, for example, the creation of the... Um, you know, the dedicated uh, segregation units for terrorist prisoners, which is, which is coming into effect this year. Um, you know, stuff like that happens without really fantastic engagement with the relevant literature. Um, and it's driven by political issues rather than necessarily by a fairly, you know, cold-blooded assessment on, on what is the, uh, the research actually telling us.
0: I, I have a feeling that this is going to be a topic that we'll come back to again and again with our other interviewees as well. We can see if it's, if it's the same reaction for people here within the UK, uh, with other academics in the UK, those in North America will be interviewing, those from elsewhere as well. But I realise uh, we've gone a bit over the, the time that I was expecting we'd go to. But let's go on to your final piece of research that you've brought in. I, I've always found this interest, uh, interesting about your research. You research research. Yeah. Um, And the piece that you've chosen here is a a recent article that I think every terrorist academic secretly looked at and flicked to the back of it there because it's the golden age. What are the hundred most cited articles in terrorism studies? What do they tell us? Uh, It's research you've done with our colleague Jennifer Schmidt-Peterson and I think... uh, I think there were a few of our guests who probably went to that, that 100 list and go, okay, where am I, where am I, where am I? Did you do the same when you were doing it?
1: Were you doing this to try and find which was your most popular article? Yeah, I, I wish, sadly, I, sadly, to save anyone the, the bother, I'm not in the uh, the top 100 list, uh, uh, if, if only. Um, and it was, But I, I think I was interested, I part, part of the origin for that particular study, and it was essentially looking at what are the 100 most cited articles and what does that tell us about... About research on, on on terrorism and counterterrorism, and I had read um, uh, a similar article, but looking at criminology, what were the hundred most cited articles on criminology? And it, it does give you a sense of okay, what are the the big pieces of work that you need to be aware of? The big theories, the the kind of the, the um, you know the the major pieces of research that everybody should know about. Um, you know, the, the, the 100 articles you should read before you die type. And, <laughs> Your desert it, island is Essentially, and it's kind of, I think for me, it was a case of, well, you yeah, know, who is going to be on the list? I mean, I knew in my mind articles that I felt were important and um, had an impact. Um, were they actually going to make it? Um, and I think what was eye-opening were the number of articles I'd never, I'd never heard of. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, this is from somebody who spent his entire you know, professional life working on terrorism and counterterrorism, and yet in this top 100 list, there were more than a few that I had never come across and I never read, and they were quite high up there. Mm. So it was kind of a case of that was eye opening. Um, and I, it, it was one of the other issues in, in the background of this piece of work was obviously tying into you know the whole debate about where is terrorism studies as an area now today. Yeah. Um, is it in good health or is it in trouble? Um, has there been progress from where we were back in the nineties? Um, and what does what does this list tell us about any of that? Um, and as you know, many of the listeners will know about you know Mark Sageman in uh, twenty fourteen. You know had his polemic piece you know the stagnation of terrorism studies. And he, you know our, and he was arguing to you you know we haven't made progress. We're 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 stuck in a dead end. Uh, the quantity of the research is really poor. Um, and there's a lot of fundamental questions we still don't have answers to because the evidence is, is so bad and that provoked a reaction and, and you know there were a lot of people got quite animated about it but you know it, this was partly also interested in looking at that question and so looking at okay what do, what do the hundred most cited studies tell us and um, and do they back up sageman or do they back up you know, the, the counter-critics yeah. that actually... There was, People like Alex Schmidt. Alex were, Schmidt, you yeah. know, for example, who said, you know, station been um you know, too negative in terms of, in term, in of his conclusion. Um, and so that was part of the purpose as well. What does, what does this list tell us about that? Um, and one of the key findings was that it, it backed up Alex Schmidt. He basically, you know, he, you know, he won the early one. Mm. Um, because what you find is that there was a lot of high-impact, high-citation articles had been published since 2001. And in fact, to the post-2001 research was winning, hands down, the pre-9-11 stuff. And it was basically, um, and when you looked at the actual studies, you were finding that these were tended to be studies which were producing new data, which were genuinely good pieces of research. Now, Mark Sageman's point that an awful lot of terrorism research and counterterrorism research is poor quality still stood, but there's just simply so much research taking place now that even if 90% of it is rubbish, uh, the 10% that isn't rubbish, there's a lot of you know, it's, it's, it's there's a lot of it that's very, very good. and so that overall when you look at the, the impact of the very good stuff, it is having a positive impact. And so the, the conclusion in the end, you know the question was that, you know the golden age question mark. And I think the conclusion was, yes, we are in a golden age of terrorism research. Um, we are making more progress today. Than ever before which isn't to say that the field is perfect it's still got serious problems there's still an awful lot of poor quality and mediocre research out there but there are sufficient gems being published that actually we are genuinely making progress and we are um, able to 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 kind of uh, come to insights uh, and in, in a more reliable and more valid way um, Than was the case back in the nineteen nineties, nineteen eighties, and and it, it's very promising overall for going forward um, in terms of how much we've learned in the last ten years, and to anticipate how much are we likely to to learn in the next ten years as well, and, and we can start talking about some of the core questions um, in a in an evidence based way that simply wasn't possible when, for example, the um, you know my edited book. Back in 2003, was written again. You know, we lacked evidence on a lot of the issues. Mm-hmm. Um, whereas now, if that book was to be written today, the chapters would be very different. The type of evidence base that you would rely on would would be tougher, more stringent, more demanding. Um, and in, so, overall, I think the, the you know that particular article was suggesting that there is progress. So, to bring it all to a close, then.
0: With that in mind and with everything we've been talking about in mind, where do, does terrorism studies go now? What are the questions that still need to be answered that you think in those next few years will have the focus of researchers or will it be the same questions again and again that we need to test and retest the data?
1: I think to a degree it's going to be the same questions. Um, certainly if we're thinking in terms of a 10-year time, time span. It's going to be the same questions but the quality of the evidence and the quality of the data that's being generated to answer the questions is getting better, it's getting more detailed, um, is getting more refined. And so the type of question, for example, who becomes a terrorist and why? You know, why does this person become radicalised when the person living next door, going to the same school, exposed to the same environment? Um, why didn't they join up, but this person did join up? What's the difference? Are The type of data that we have now to answer that question or to, 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 to provide insight into that question is getting better and better um, and is moving beyond the anecdote, um, which, you know, we relied upon in, in, in you know, in, in previous decades. And I think, but I expect the questions are largely going to stay the same questions that the, the issues that we're interested in today were largely the same issues we were interested in 10 years ago. Um, and I suspect there will still be the same questions and issues that we'll be interested in, in 10 years from now, but the evidence base around it is going to become more and more refined and it's going to be, become more granular in a way that up until now we just ha- haven't been able to, to um, drill down to that level um, in the past. But increasingly we're, we are becoming able to do that. Okay. Well, I think on
0: that note, we'll finish up our first ever episode of Talking Terror here at UEL. Uh, I'd like to thank Professor Andrew Silk for being my, my first guest on this podcast. Uh, follow us on Twitter on at And remember to go on our website, www.uel.ac.uk forward slash Turk, to find out everything for, about our research, the MSC we offer in terrorism encounters, terrorism studies. And the book series uh, i'd like to also thank jamie murray for organizing the equipment and for editing this and um, i'll talk to you all again soon thanks very much so that was the first ever episode of talking terror i hope you found my chat with professor andrew silk both interesting and informative hopefully you'll be tuning back in next week when i sit down and talk to professor laura dugan in that chat we'll be discussing everything from the works that influenced her work by people such as Clark McGawley and David Rappaport, Angela Brown and Kirk Williams. As well as that we'll be focusing on on her own research, predominantly focusing on her work relating to the Global Terrorism Database. If you use the GTD be sure to tune into that episode because she'll be giving some key tips for users of the database. We'll also be talking about her work with Erica Chenoweth relating to Israeli counterterrorism, and finally a piece on Armenian terrorism as well. It's not something you would uh, you would hear about every day, but really interesting piece of work. So hopefully you'll be back next week and
1: uh, chat to you then.